So we look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thanking you now for the way in which this passage of Scripture relates to the issues we face in everyday life. Here we're going to see how past, present, and future are connected to the cross of Jesus Christ. You're going to teach us how Palm Sunday and Passover come together. How the one described in the Gospel of John, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, is the same Lamb described here in Revelation chapter 12 as the conquering Lamb, though different Greek words were used. So, Father, what we need now is tremendous insight into the way in which all of this, each of these verses relate to modern-day living. We don't want to be past tense people. We want to be cutting edge. We want to be like the sons of Issachar who understood the times. We've got to understand how the past, the present, and the future all connect together as we live our lives before you. So, Father, in these minutes you give us together, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was pondering, probably like you, the attack on Syria on Thursday night, my mind went back to some things that I had learned about World War I where 100 years ago, 100 years ago, in 1917, in April of 1917, the President of the United States, President Woodrow Wilson, declared war. And when he declared war, it would become known as the Great War. It was called the Great War, later known as the First World War. But there were some significant things that were happening in the world that required him to come before Congress. He had run on a re-election slogan. He kept us out of war. And interestingly enough, another re-election slogan that played well in America was the slogan, America first. But two significant things occurred that forced his hand. One was the submarine warfare being produced by Germany. And the second was the Zimmerman telegraph that had been intercepted by the United States, where Germany was attempting to contact Mexico so as to create turmoil where Mexico would go to war against the United States trying to retrieve Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico, whereby America would be so preoccupied with its southern border, it would not have the time nor the resources necessary to go into what would be known as the Great War. Woodrow Wilson believed that the Atlantic Ocean would have been enough of a buffer to keep us out of war, but then the tide turned. 
And so he went before Congress with a declaration of war. He wanted to remain neutral, but saw no gain. And so with these words, this present German submarine warfare against our commerce is a warfare against humankind. The world must be made safe. And so on April 2nd of 1917, 100 years ago, he would go on to say that into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seems to be hanging in the balance. And by the time that his appeal was complete, Congress stood, cheered, and applauded, President Wilson went back to his office, looked at his aide, and said, Isn't it strange that people should cheer for war? And then he put his head on his desk and wept. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, you and I are told that war, now war, arose in heaven. If you and I are going to be able to understand Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, on his return, what we're going to have to do is to move beyond what we'll call an earthly worldview and develop biblically a Christian worldview that takes into account the cosmic conflict, past, present, and future, that chapter 12 of Revelation lays out for us. It's going to use a combination of symbolic and signage-type language that we're going to have to decipher, depending upon the prior books of the scriptures, to inform us. But when we do that, We're going to have a better appreciation for why the cross of Jesus Christ is so significant to our lives. There's two aspects of this cosmic conflict I want to draw out and see how they relate to 2017, not 1917 living, but 2017 living. The first flows out of this, one through six, and we're going to put it this way, that in the midst of cosmic conflict that you and I find ourselves in, Note first with me the signs here that God has provided. There's two, the first of which is found in verse 1 with that phrase, and a great sign appeared. The second, which we'll get to, found in verse 3, and another sign appeared. But it begins in verse 1, and a great sign appeared. But notice with me, it doesn't read, a great sign appeared on earth, does it? No. No says, a great sign appeared in heaven, right? Now, when you track with me the Apostle John's writings, what you will find, for example, in his opening chapters of the Gospel of John, is that Jesus Christ performed a miracle in Canaan of Galilee where he turned water into wine. The Apostle John, he wrote the Gospel of John as well as the Revelation. 
the Apostle John informs you and me in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John that this was Jesus' first sign. At the end of the Gospel of John, John will tell us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Why did he write them? Why, furthermore, did Jesus Christ perform them? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What you do now is this. You work with the Apostle John, who assumes that his readership has worked through the Gospel of John, and the epistles of John are now found in the revelation given to John. And you connect the signs. And here a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, in the past few days, we have a new baseball season that has begun. God is gracious. And when you're watching the game of the week, perhaps tonight, or any of the games this coming week, or go down to Miller Park, or make a pilgrimage to Wrigley Field, or whatever, watch the signage. If Yadier Molina for the Cardinals, they're in town at some point playing the Brewers, that brilliant catcher, watch how he utilizes the signs behind the plate to communicate with his pitcher. Furthermore, watch the third base coach as he in turn is utilizing signs to communicate to the batter. Both those on the field, defense, and that one at the bat, offense, are both dependent upon signage. When our family made its way to Wisconsin, the kids were watching the signs out on the highways. X number of miles until you reach, of course, Chicago. X number of miles until you reach Sheboygan. Twenty years later, pondering signs. The book, the Gospel of John, needs to be connected to the epistles of John, which need to be connected to the book of Revelation given to John. And watch the connectedness of signage. When Jesus Christ utilized signs in the Gospel of John, it was meant to be instructional that he is who he claimed to be. In the book of Revelation, the signage given here is directional, telling us where everything is going to go in light of who he is and what he has done. Instructional, directional. When all of a sudden, through symbolic language, a woman clothed with a son in verse 1 is referred to. Who's this woman? And this woman refers to the remnant of Israel, the messianic community, the people who have been anticipating that one who would come to this world, become king of the Jews. This woman, we are told here in this visual, is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. If you're going to study the book of Revelation, what you're going to need to do 
is to make absolutely certain that you've processed then how the Old Testament informs the Newer Testament, and in particular, how the books of the Bible inform the book of Revelation. Because in Genesis chapter 37, there was a vision given to Joseph. Now, just as John is being given a vision for the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, you connect the dots, and there in the book of Genesis, Joseph is being given a vision by Gad. And he's about to inform his family. And it doesn't go over very well, I want you to know. He dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and interestingly, 11 stars were bowing down before to me. He obviously, viewing himself as the 12th. But when he told his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come down, come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. And you connect that to Mary, who after shepherds had made their way to seek out Jesus treasured the truths and the facts of these things in her heart. A crown of 12 stars. Think the 12 tribes of Israel of old, but you're connecting the dots furthermore. You're thinking of the 12 disciples of Jesus in the new. But interestingly enough, because the world has a way of counterfeiting, in Greek mythology, there are what is known as the 12 Olympians, starting with Zeus, of course. Now, in verse 2, this woman, which we are referring to at this point as the messianic community, which is anticipating this one who will come into the world, she's pregnant, this messianic community is. She's crying out in birth the agony of giving birth. There then's your first sign. And you begin to ponder the significance of this sign. And you're wondering, what does this all mean? Thus far, there's this sense of expectancy. But now, the second sign beginning in verse 3 down to verse 6, where we are now informed another sign appeared. Where? Here's your answer. Not on earth. In heaven. Now you're connecting the signage throughout the gospel of John on earth with the signage given in the revelation to John. And another sign appeared in heaven, and now notice the word that comes next. It's a visual word, because this is a vision. He says, behold. It's going to arrest your attention at this point, seize your thought process. He wants to develop a, a blend of instruction and direction for your mindset to understand the cosmic conflict of this world. 
And why is Syria doing what Syria does? And how confusing is it when you're fighting ISIS on one hand and Assad on the other hand, and Assad is opposed to ISIS, and ISIS is opposed to Assad, and America finds itself bombing Assad at the same time fighting ISIS? How do you understand the conflictedness of this global chaos? And another sign appeared in heaven, and so you pause because he utilizes a visual word, behold. Then look what comes next. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, notice with me that this visual takes into account that's in the heavens. We're dealing with a cosmic conflict, and the symbolism here is the symbolism of a dragon. You say, I'm really not into dragons. Well, let me ask you, did you by chance go to see the hobbit? Or have you read the book, The Hobbit? And have you pondered the significance of the symbolism of smog? Or years ago, I was working on my doctor. We headed back to my alma mater of Wheaton College, and we went into the Wade Center on Wheaton's campus. And the kids were taken up with the wardrobe utilized by C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was right there in front of them, Lewis's collection. But next to the wardrobe was this big desk, and I said, there is the desk that J.R. Tolkien used to write, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Smog says, well, thief, I smell you, I hear your breath, I feel your air, where are you? As he moves in Bilbo's direction, come now, says the dragon, don't be shy, ponder the imagery, step into the light. Smog as he converses, furthermore, with thorn. Here, you witless worm, you. Thorn says, I'm taking back what you stole. And Smog says, you will take nothing from me, dwarf. I laid low your warriors of old. I instilled fear and terror in the hearts of men. I am king. Under the mountain, the thorn responds to the dragon, this is not your kingdom. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, you pause, a great red dragon with seven heads 
ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now, what is interesting about all of this is that he is claiming royalty. Meanwhile, Magi, in a previous time, were making their way toward Bethlehem, looking for the one who is born, what? King of the Jews. Up through this point in time of Jesus Christ's ministry on earth, Roman emperors wore crowns, but had not yet utilized diadems. When Diocletian became emperor of the Roman Empire and instituted a tremendous persecution against believers, a diadem was placed upon his head. This counterfeiter in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, is using diadem to counterfeit the true claim of royalty, but will be eventually overwhelmed in Revelation chapter 19, where we are told that his eyes, speaking of our Lord Jesus, are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And now you take the diadem, you take the Word of God, and you connect this back to the Gospel of John, where it began, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you connect it furthermore to First John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. And we're awed. Our Lord is entering into cosmic conflict. And now the Apostle John, who is on the Isle of Patmos, is trying to find verbal ways to communicate visual teachings. In verse 4, his tale, this dragon, symbolizing, representing something or someone, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, and the dragon, still using symbolic terminology here at this point, the dragon stood before the woman. The word stood in the original carries with the idea to take one's stand in order to position oneself for attack. It was a military term. It was a term that would describe warfare, conflict and conquest. Feel the tensions rising. So the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. He's going to attack. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And now you ponder Pharaoh of the Older Testament and how he had the baby boys being attempted to be killed off. 
and you connect the dots to the New Testament, and you've got Herod the Great, who feels so threatened because he views himself as king, is to have the baby boys put to death. Because he's threatened by one who is greater than he. And in his earthly kingdom, Herod takes life. But you see, in this eternal cosmic kingdom, Jesus Christ gives life. But there's this clash. There's this conflict. Now you've got to connect Bethlehem to Calvary. And Calvary, Good Friday to Easter, Resurrection Sunday, who wins? The dragon stood. He's taken his stand for the point and purpose of attack. This is the illustration here of anti-Semitism at this point. Before the woman, Israel, about to give birth, he's awaiting that child. And your mind goes back to the Old Testament. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And now you begin to see the cosmic conflict of whose government? Who will wear the diadem? Who shall truly reign? As soldiers place crown of thorns on Jesus' head and mock him as being king of the Jews. But Jesus, the sovereign one, who on that cross will have that placard placed above him, will have it imprinted in different languages so that this will be more than merely nationalistic. This is going to be cosmic. You see? There's so much here. So in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the writer at this point still assumes, the Apostle John does, you have been working through your Old Testament, and that's why day after day, week after week, year after year, we work through Newer Testament, but also Older Testament, back and forth to understand the sum total of all this. Because in Psalm chapter 2, in the second Psalm of Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. That's what John is referring to at this point. Psalm 2, verse 9, a messianic promise. And so here now is this Messiah to give. He's about to be born so that when she bore her child, he, this dragon, might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In other words, what the writer of Revelation does at this point is this. He basically skips over the crucifixion and the resurrection. and goes straight from Bethlehem on into heaven. Why? He's assuming that you've read the Gospel of John. He's assuming his readership has worked through all those chapters in the Gospel of John that take into account Christ's birth, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, book of Acts, onward. And so he wants to simply, for the space of time, the sake of time, move this thing forward because he's dealing with the in heavens principle. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And you say, but Gary, what's the significance of that? Well, no. 1,260 days is roughly three and a half years. The tribulational period, which is depicted in the book of Revelation as a seven-year period, two, three-and-a-half-year periods. But here's the danger. There are some books written when it comes to commenting on the book of Revelation that views all of this as past tense, and it refers to a three-and-a-half-year period just before the beginning of the New Testament known as the Maccabean Revolt. And our history teachers in each of these morning services uh, can tell us all about that between services on the hallways, what that entailed. It was an intensive time. But the most intensive time in the Maccabean Revolt was the three-and-a-half-year period before Jesus entered into Bethlehem. Then there are others who don't take the historicist approach, but rather a futurist approach, and say, but it's all future. And so then you ask, and Gary, which is it? The historicist or the futurist? And I say, yes. It's both. Because God works on installments. Each installment carries with it a sense of significance. And so there's this continual unfolding of the drama of redemption that took into account what took place between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. And you really can't teach Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation, without spending time talking about the history of the Maccabean Revolt that took place right beginning of the New Testament time period. Three and a half years, which were signage, historical signage, instructional and directional, pointing toward that final three and a half year period still to come. And now you're processing the signs. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was incarcerated in the gulags during communism. Soviet Union thought it rained. He's waiting, his head's down, he appears almost lifeless. But all of a sudden, an elderly man sits down next to him. Hunched over, the man drew a stick through the sand at Solzhenitsyn's feet. It's a sign. Deliberately tracing out the sign of the cross. As Solzhenitsyn stared at that rough outline, his biographer informs us entire perspective shifted. The Soviet Empire was not sovereign. God was. And because of God, all things are possible. Solzhenitsyn slowly got up, picked up his shovel, went back to work, knowing that the writings are true and that Jesus Christ alone is sovereign. This is a cosmic conflict of diadems. Who's in charge anyways? The Pharaoh thought he was in the Old Testament. 
Herod the Great thought he was in the Newer Testament. Diocletian thought he was subsequent to the closure of the Can as the believers as well as the Jews who had not yet come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior experienced persecution in their synagogues. In the midst of cosmic conflict, note first of all the signs that God has provided. The first sign out of verse 1 and 2, the second verses 3 through 6. Now, you've got to connect with me here. I want you to connect the signs of verses 1 through 6 with salvation in 7 through 12. Because second of all, in the midst of cosmic conflict, note with me the salvation that God has procured. In verse 7, we are informed, now war arose in heaven. Some would argue that that word now deals with what I will call the preview now. Deals with the answer to the question, when? I hold to the overview now that answers the question of when. Past, present, future. Not dismissing the futuristic, but not underestimating the historical aspect to this. Connecting the Maccabean revolt to that final three and a half year period still to come. But utilizing a past, present, future alpha and omega approach to things. Where we see the sum total of life as it relates to the overall eternal plan, the answer to the question of the why are things the way they are combines the why and the when war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Symbolic language here of cosmic significance. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Watch the irony unfolding. But he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. This is the clash of the elect and non-elect angels. Of Satan versus Michael. Now, like wrestling, watched the throwdown. And the great dragon was thrown down. Doesn't say he went down. Draw a line back to what he had done in verse 4, where his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And connect that to what you and I see here, where the great dragon was thrown down. Who reigns? Question mark. Who has the legitimate basis for the diadem? Here, and I don't want you to miss this, draw another line. In verse 5, you and I are told with regard to the child of this woman, her child was caught up to God, Jesus. Ascent. Here is the evil one, thrown down by God, descended. You see what's happening here? 
as the cosmic conflict continues to unfold. Notice the repetition of the throne down. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. Now he's assuming that because there are about 400 allusions to the Older Testament, you're tracking with him. So he, he expands for you and me now because the signage and the symbolism are meant for both instruction and direction. He takes you back to go ahead. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. He's taking you back to the Garden of Eden. The ancient serpent. Becomes more specific, the devil. More specific still, Satan, the deceiver of Israel. No. Of the whole world. This is cosmic. It's using symbolic language to communicate cosmic truths. Thrown down to the earth, his angels were thrown down with him. Imagine what the final days look like with that in mind. And then this summary statement after the takedown. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now. You can almost feel this sense of relief. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Robinson Crusoe. Friday. I love that name. I always think of Good Friday when I think of him. Friday says to Crusoe in question form, If God much strong, much might as the devil, why God no kill the devil? So make him do no more wicked. Oh, is he asking good questions? Provocative questions. Reality-based questions. He's wrestling in many ways, you see, with the purposes of God. But John has already written that Jesus Christ, and we'll get to this in 1 John chapter 3, came to destroy the works of the devil. doesn't say he came to destroy the devil. In his first coming, he came to destroy the works of the devil. His second coming, he destroys the devil. You see the difference? There's the answer to our friend Good Friday. But now, you see, once you understand purpose, we see the thrusting and this one thrown out of the heavens. And you move from what is described here symbolically as the war in verses 7 through 10 to the witness unfolding in verses 11 and 12. Verses 7 through 12 can be divided into Two parts, the war, verses 7 through 10, the witness, verses 11 and 12, and you say, well, get, get practical here. I need practicality. I go to work Monday morning. Connect this. Gotcha. Check out 11. There are three significant application points 
for people who wrestle with cosmic conflict. And maybe you're experiencing it at the very family level. Intense. Maybe you are experiencing it somehow in your work-related matters. Maybe it's something altogether bigger and broader than that. Three recommendations practically to how to function in cosmic conflict context. First, believers overcome the evil one, number one, by the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he entered in at the start of Passover. Historically, for Passover, that's the time where the lambs were slain. In Exodus chapter 12, the teaching on Passover was that this was to be a sign to you. It was a directional, instructional signage of the ultimate Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Now read carefully our handout and notice what I've penned here. The Bible refers to Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. In John 1.29, where John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Greek word here for lamb is omnos, referring to the Passover lamb. However, in Revelation 12, verse 11, which speaks by the blood of the Lamb, the Greek word is not amnos, it is arnion. And the Jews would have recognized this from Jewish literature because arnion would refer to the idea of the conquering Lamb. In other words, as I've spoken of in prior times, Jesus Christ is both amnos and arnion. You are now connecting Good Friday, amnos, with Anion, Easter Sunday. He's the sacrificial lamb of Good Friday. Amnon. He is the conquering lamb of Easter. Anion. And now you connect Palm Sunday to Passover. You connect Older Testament to Newer Testament. You connect Omnion and Anion. You connect the Gospel of John, the first, second, third John, and Revelation. And you're almost overwhelmed with what God is saying here in the cosmic conflicts that we experience even in family matters, even in a nation such as ours, as well as the global cosmic conflicts that are being worked out on a daily basis. There's your first application point here. It comes from the word Believers overcome the evil one. If you're facing an evil thrust in front of your face this week, it's overcome by the blood of the Lamb, number one. Second, believers overcome the evil one by the word of their testimony. Stay true to God's word, even in the midst of conflict. They have conquered him. doesn't say he conquered 
the evil one now. We know he's already done it. He has been raised from the dead. He is seated in the heavens. He has thrust out the evil one. Christ ascends, the evil one descends. It's done by the blood of the Lamb. But now we furthermore are able then to stand strong by the word of their testimony. And then the third application point, believers overcome the evil one by not living and not loving their lives, even unto death. For they love not their lives, even unto death. In other words, your primary love is focused upon Jesus Christ. The one who first loved you. You take a deep breath. And now verse 12 speaks to your heart. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth. You feel the tension, the conflict, heavens, earth. This is cosmic. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. But now, first coming connects with second coming. Because he knows that his time is short. As Jesus Christ appears on the scene. And the tremendous teaching of Revelation 19, 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. At the end of the Great War, a peace treaty was signed. It was known as the Armistice. We have Armistice Day as part of our vocabulary on a on national calendar. But what's interesting about an armistice is that it's simply a temporary suspension of hostilities by agreement of two warring parties, in other words, a truce. But what we find here in God's word is that the cross of Jesus Christ, which connects the first coming to the second coming, God's sovereign plan does not result in an armistice. It results in a resolution. Tetelestai, I said Jesus. It is finished. And for this, we give God all the praise. Let's stand together. And so, Father, what we're doing now is we're pulling a lot of thought together. We're understanding not only history and current events. We anticipate that final day. But through it all, we have a sovereign God, the Alpha and the Omega, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was and who is and who is to come who connects Good Friday with Easter Sunday, a first coming with a second coming, and gives each one in these services this morning hope. So if there's anyone here that arrived on the scene this morning feeling rather hopeless, I pray that they will leave today emboldened by the fact they have a sovereign God who handles the cosmos 
and holds it in his hands. and brings peace to our hearts and ultimately peace to this world through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.